0: Hello one and all and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Spurgeon is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, an English particular Baptist preacher who still well known across the world as a preacher and teacher of Jesus Christ is a good example to us of what it means to be a minister of the new covenant. My name is Jeremy Walker, and it's my privilege to step with you through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon that were published, first of all, in the New Park Street Pulpit, and then in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. Each week, we read through a sermon a day, and uh, God willing... We're able to keep up with that pace, but if not, we have a featured sermon, one particular sermon each week in which you can uh, concentrate so as to get a real flavour, a representative flavour of the uh, sermon ministry of Charles Spurgeon. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon. If you'd like a weekly update, you can get that at www.mediagratiae.org podcasts. And uh, Follow the link to the Heart of Spurgeon and there's a weekly newsletter with uh, a PDF of the featured sermon and some extra information about where to find some of these things. Media Gratii are the very kind uh, sponsors and distributors of this podcast. Our sermons this week are from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 8, and we're reading from Sermon 430 to 436. The featured sermon this week is Life in Earnest. Now, Spurgeon is uh, an exhorter in the truest sense of the word. He exhorts in a number of different directions, and this sermon falls firmly into that category of exhortation. There's a a delightful little collection of sermons that was published by uh, Spurgeon's publishers, Passmore and Alabaster, uh, called Trumpet Calls to Christian Energy. I think that it's an outstanding little volume, uh, a series of exhortations, encouragements, stirrings up to Christian service. This sermon doesn't appear in that collection, but it could very easily have done so. Spurgeon begins this sermon by making a point that may be familiar to you if you know the excellent treatment of holiness by the uh, first Lord Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle. In it, he has a little chapter on zeal where he says that a zealous man is a man of one thing. And that's really where Spurgeon begins. A general rule of the moral universe that those men prosper who do their work with all their hearts, while those are almost certain to fail who go to their labour, leaving half their hearts behind them. So he says, "...it is universally confessed that if a man would prosper, he must be diligent in business." For at this day, beyond every preceding age is it true, in the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat bread. Now, says Spurgeon, if that's true in business, although I don't want you to think of religion merely as a business, I do want you to put as much force and power and energy and heartiness and earnestness into religion as ever you do into business, and I might add that it deserves far more. He identifies the fact that false religions tend to spread by zeal and earnestness, but is not the true religion of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ worthy under the Spirit's influence of all our effort? I think it's it's a, an ongoing frustration in the Uh, the sphere in which I'm serving and some of my fellow ministers, that people seem both willing and able to devote so much time and energy and money to almost anything but true religion, or at very least, true religion, true Christianity, the Church of Jesus Christ and the service of the Lord don't seem to have a priority in our hearts in the way that they should. Under God the Holy Spirit, says Spurgeon, our only hope then for the increase of the church and for the conversion of the world lies in the development of energy within us, in the bringing out of earnestness in Christian souls. And he asks, look around you, who are the most useful men in the Christian church today? The men who do what they undertake for God with all their hearts. Where is the preacher whom God blesses to the conversion of hundreds in a year? Is he a sleepy, prosaic soul? Does he confine himself within narrow limits? Does he speak sleepy words to a slumbering congregation? We know it is not so, but where God is pleased to give the congregation, it is, whatever it may not be, a proof that there has been earnestness in the preacher. What about the most successful Sabbath school teachers? The most learned? No, every superintendent will tell you it is not so. The most talented, the most wealthy? No, they are the most zealous, the men whose hearts are on fire. Those are the men who honour Christ. Who among you today, he asks, is doing the most for your master's kingdom? I will tell you. Lend me a spiritual thermometer by which I may try the heat of your heart and I will tell you the amount of your success. If your hearts be cold towards God, I am sure ye are doing nothing though ye may pretend to do it. But if ye can say, Lord our soul is all on flame with an agony of desire to do good to the souls of men, then you are doing good and God is blessing you as he did Hezekiah who did it with all his heart and prospered. Now notice what's important here, Spurgeon is not talking about mere natural energy but about spiritual devotion about serving God with all our hearts and while there may be then some uh, natural distinctions in terms of uh, energy and intellect and talent and whatever else there may be, though there are varieties of grace and gift bestowed from heaven, his point is that it is the heart taken up with God and his glory that will do things and do great things for the Lord God. And so, he says, we want to notice the effects of wholeheartedness upon the Christian. Then he's going to endeavour to stir us up with many arguments to be earnest in our work of faith and labour of love. And then finally, he's going to address those to whom religion has as yet been a trifling matter. Uh, And God grant, he says then, that they may be ready to seek the Lord with all their hearts, for then he will surely be found of them. So here's the the way he's going to handle this, the effects of wholeheartedness on the Christian first of all, then some stirring arguments to be earnest and then he's going to turn to the necessary earnestness of those for whom religion has as yet been a trifling matter. First then, Let us notice the sphere which Christian earnestness occupies in the divine life and again he says I'm speaking to those who are really and savingly converted to God for if that's not the case zeal for God is but a pretense. One of the first things then that thorough earnestness will do for a Christian man is to make him think very earnestly for his lord and master. Why, beloved, if we are really in earnest for God, we shall begin to think of Christ's work in the world as soon as ever we wake. And when we rest at night, it will be still with the Lord before us and with his glory written in our hearts. So here's our first test for our own souls. To what degree or extent, with what regularity and persistence do we consider the work of the kingdom of God and the cause of Jesus Christ? Can we go day after day without any regard or thought concerning these things? And then, when you've considered the cause of Christ, the next thing a godly man, an earnest man, will do is to plan and to purpose for it. We will actually then begin to scheme something out for the glory of God. Give a man earnestness, says Spurgeon, and every time he makes a purpose, it is a purpose. Every stroke of the great motive power within his soul tells and sets a wheel in motion. He cannot let the blood circulate through him without its carrying life in every drop. But some men have dead blood in their veins. It is going round, going to the heart and issuing from it, but there is no life in a drop of it. They can talk, there's an occasional resolve, but nothing ever comes to a definite purpose. Oh there's a, a an airy scheme, there's talking about possibilities but they never actually get on with the job and this is rife among God's people. Says Spurgeon, only earnest men get so far as to select their purpose and adhere to it. Dear friends, choose your gun but mind you stand to it till every round of ammunition is exhausted. He talks about people in a a sort of a spiritual or religious spasm, an apoplectic fit of pious enthusiasm who make a huge resolve but come to their cooler senses long before it is carried out. But, says Spurgeon, when a man's heart is right with God, what he has resolved to do, he will do. Again, perhaps we need to pause and ask, how many dreams and schemes do I have? I've frankly become... Uh, a touch weary with people who, who say something like this, oh, you, you just give me the opportunities and, and you watch me go. You wait until the circumstances are right and and you'll see what I can accomplish. You just hang on a little bit and when things fall into place, when when this has taken place, when that's occurred, when I've got this sorted out, when I've accomplished that, then you'll see me really do something for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am confident that that's almost never Going to actually happen because a man or a woman who is not doing what he can now with what he's got isn't going to do it because chances are those perfect circumstances will never really occur. The zealous man, having resolved, does what he can where he is. I know this, says the preacher, that when a man gets thoroughly alive for God, he cannot put up with those lazy sluggards who will neither work themselves nor permit others to labour. Again, this is the grief of the earnest man. And where there are earnest men and women in churches, their great grief so often is those who seem to be dragging their feet and hanging their hands. Methinks," says the preacher here, "a Christian is never worth much till, having been brought up to the point of resolve, he will achieve the heaven-born purpose, come what may, and is ready everything earthly and worldly to crash and smash, but what he will accomplish is life work in the name of the eternal God who called him to it. Then there will be perseverance. So first of all, there's thinking, then there's the planning." And the purposing, the the working out, and then there's perseverance in the pursuit of these things. The sure effect of this wholeheartedness for God is that a man will not stop just because the life that he's chosen or the path he's pursuing is difficult. Then, he says, this heart being thus on fire will show its zeal in an entire dependence upon God and in intensely fervent prayer for God's help and for God's blessing. Surely a man cannot know himself, who, when he has a high and noble purpose, attempts it apart from God, for he is well persuaded that if it be God's work, it must be done in God's strength, and as he must have that strength, he goes before God as if he meant to have it and could take no denial. So he'll be a praying man. There's a practical purpose about our prayers, an intense earnestness to win the blessing from the angel as much as there is on the part of any wrestler to hurl his foe upon his back. We shall never get true and lasting revival in the church till we have men who in their supplications do the work with all their hearts and thus prosper. So, says Spurgeon, let me try and draw this together it enters into every part of the spiritual man to be earnest about the things of God. Earnestness quickens his pulse, increases the circulation of his blood, makes the man in all respects in a healthy state. Holy stimulants make the soul stronger. And if you ask me what fire has to do with the Christian sacrifice, I would answer it has everything to do with it. And so, here's Spurgeon, this is very typical of him. Uh, It's It's something I wonder do we lack a sense of the immediacy of the act of preaching in our relationship to God and men? For Spurgeon often calls out in prayer or praise in the very act of preaching, as he does here Jesus, Master. Baptise us with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Fill our souls with fervour. Restore unto us the indomitable energy of our ancestors. Give us back the northern iron and steel to which their resolute natures may be likened. Deliver us from these willow days in which men bend before every blast. Make us strong men to run the race of righteousness and mighty men made mighty through thy spirit with earnestness to serve thee among the souls of men. So then, here is this earnest nature a thinking, planning, purposing, and praying in dependence upon God, persevering in the way of righteousness, as we see what needs to be done for the Lord. Now, says Spurgeon, I want to stir you up secondly by certain arguments which may provoke you to this earnestness. In other words, why should you have this spirit, and how can it be sustained? Either our religion is the grossest imposture that was ever palmed upon mankind, or else it is one which deserves the whole life and force and strength of every man who has been blessed by it. It's either a sham or it calls forth everything that we are and have. Oh, I could not, I hope, he said, I speak before God, hold the religion of Christ and yet be sleepy about it. How can you believe what you believe and be casual and careless? It seems to me, says the preacher, to be an insane attack upon everything like wisdom to put the worst things first and the best things last, to put the world on our heads and heaven under our feet, to make Christ second best and to make mammon chief and lord in our affections. How is it that we can give ourselves to the world and we can neglect the things of God? And so he says, I want your hearts warmed this morning and I want you to understand what solemn things we have to deal with. We have to deal with the souls of men, immortal, infinitely precious. We have to deal under God with the eternal interests of heaven and hell. We have dealings with the sinner's sin, longing to see it washed away with the precious blood of Christ. We have dealings with man's natural death in sin and long that men may be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon's dwelling upon these things this earnestness has to be the fruit of meditation we have to stop and consider what it is in which we are involved so consider the greatness of the work we have to deal with he's preaching in London at that time three million people as many as the Scottish nation at the time with 60,000 added to the number every year what about your town Your city, your village, your place, even your home. How many ones or twos or tens or twenties or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands or even millions are there who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? We cannot afford to be half-hearted here, says Spurgeon. If there be some happy city somewhere in the world where all men hear the word and where the most are converted, even their coldness were inexcusable. But here, in this awful city with so much to do, asleep, oh God, forgive us that we are not more awake. Then, says Spurgeon, think how earnest Satan is, how hard he works in his kingdom. And what shall we do for our God and our king? Shall we be any less striving and serving for his glory than his enemies are against him? And he says, think of the responsibilities that lie upon us as a church. And he's looking out at this great congregation to which he preaches and he says, given what God has done and has given to us here, what kind of people ought we to be? There are men in the midst of this church of whom I dare speak in any and in every company and say that apostolic days scarcely produced men superior to them. My friends, your pastors would weep with joy if they could speak the same thing about you and your fellow members. I have the felicity and the honour, says Spurgeon, to see some in this church who are patterns of everything that is good and who not only spend their time for Christ, but who, beyond what I ever expected to see of mortal men, give labour, substance and talent to Christ and his cause." Oh, we were speaking lies and hypocrisy, though, if we said all of all of you that you were doing what you could do or half what you can do. Aye, and in some cases a hundredth part of what you will wish you had done when you come to lie upon your beds. So, says Spurgeon, in his congregation, yes, there are these shining examples of Christian zeal and fervour and endeavour. But is every man, every woman doing even a hundredth part of what they could? Where are the men and the women, the boys and the girls who are always in their places on the Lord's Day? Where are the men and the women who take their places in the prayer meetings of the congregation? Where are those who are lining up to take the gospel out onto the streets of our towns and our villages and our cities? Where are the people who are pleading for an opportunity to teach the children? Where are the ones who are longing to serve in taking care of the sick or the needy or the aged? Where are those who are lining up to pray privately or in groups with friends for the blessing of God? Where are those who are seeking out every possible opportunity to make something for the glory of Christ while they have opportunity? (coughs) Says Spurgeon. If God has brought us to the kingdom for such a time as this, and we prove unworthy, deliverance will come from some other quarter to this land, but we shall have to write Ichabod upon these walls, for the glory will depart. God will leave us to our own devices. Oh friends, what a fearful prospect that our churches would wither and die under the curse of God, because we have simply been content to sit on our haunches and hope that things will move forward. We've had opportunities, says Spurgeon, of doing good that have been seldom offered to any body of Christians. And if we don't avail ourselves of them, the most withering curse that ever came upon a Christian community must most certainly fall upon us. To whom much has been given, from them much will be required. And Spurgeon says, do I really need anything else to stir you up? What about this? The dying souls of men the numbers of those who are being ushered into eternity, often with no one to care for their souls. Followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, ye are to be the deliverers of those who sit in the valley of the shadow of death, bound in affliction and iron. And will you sit still? Will you fold your arms? Will you give to the world and self that which belongs to Christ? Let my tears conjure you, What he says is, by this point, he is weeping over the souls of those who are lost and dying without knowing Jesus Christ. And he says, Are not my tears enough to draw out your hearts? Don't you understand what is at stake? Oh, sits there a Christian man anywhere around me, above or beneath, who is careless for man's soul? I pray God to send into his ears one piercing shriek from Tophet and let that abide in his memory and ring in his soul until he says, I must do something to win sinners to Christ. What he's saying again is, if you had any real sense of the horrors of damnation, of the miseries of hell, how could you sit on your hands? How could you neglect the work of the kingdom? And once more, and he says, if I fail here, I break down altogether this is this is the last thing I've got, and it's the love which we've received of Jesus, so think again, meditate upon the person and the work of Christ. My eye beholds him here's the imagination of the preacher, and he's painting, he's placarding Christ crucified, his head crowned with thorns, his feet pierced with nails, his hands dropping with blood. Jesus, Master, that same phrase as earlier, you are dying for me. That precious heart's blood of yours is flowing for my redemption and for my cleansing. At your feet I fall and kiss you. O lover of my soul, I cannot but love you. You have won my heart. The love of Christ constrains me. And then do you, O Lord, for sinners bleed, for rebels, for enemies, for those who would not have you to reign over them. And shall I not adore you? And then when I rise from my knees, shall I go forth into the world and forget you? Slaughtered Emmanuel, shall I forget you? God forbid. Oh, says Spurgeon then, are you going to look into the face of Christ crucified and never weep for souls? Can you not only experience his love for yourself, but understand the depth and the breadth and the height and the, the length of that work that he has done, and it will not move you to do something more than you have so far done and then he says, there are men who've known this. When I read the life of such men as Elaine of Taunton, uh, that's the man who wrote The Alarm to the Unconverted, or Baxter of Kidderminster, or or Grimshaw of Haworth and Whitfield of Everywhere. He says, when I think about the way these men served, I blush at my cold heart. How much more then the life of our Apostle Paul Oh the long suffering and tender mercy of God that he's had compassion on such a church as that of the present day and that he continues to have mercy upon us when we are so dull and sluggish in the service of Christ. Now listeners, don't you feel any of this? Doesn't this penetrate your soul? Don't you you feel your heart condemned and mourning? Aren't we going to repent of our own dullness and sluggishness, our lethargy? and our listlessness. He says, be like the Spartans, never needing to be flogged to action, but full of an irrepressible life which longs for conflict against everything that is contrary to God. In the light of eternity, everything but serving God will seem mere child's play, theatricals, mere masquerading. They're but the mummeries of a carnival, the jests of a comedy, the laughter of a pantomime only serving God is doing immortal work, only living for Christ is living at all. And I think for myself I speak, and I hope for you, are we now going to take this to heart? And will we stop living at a poor dying rate? And by the grace of God in us and toward us, think how now may I serve my God and my King? But Spurgeon will not finish here without Speaking to the lost, he uses a little illustration of Whitfield preaching in the parish church of Haworth, where uh, Grimshaw of Haworth was the minister, and he was a a wonderful preacher. If you can get uh, the book about him by Faith Cook, uh, then you must do so. And uh, Whitfield says, "Well, here I am. I suppose I don't need to speak to the ungodly in this place, because uh, why would you need it under such a ministry as that of William Grimshaw?" Grimshaw stood up and said, don't flatter them brother Whitfield, I fear that half of them are going to hell with their eyes open. And so Spurgeon says blessing God for all the conversions that have taken place in the metropolitan tabernacle yet for God's sake we dare not flatter you there are many of you still in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity as far from God as ever you were though we've wept over you and preached you again and again yet your hard hearts will not break. And so his plea is this God and his kingdom. Christ and his salvation are worthy of your most earnest endeavours. When you come to die, you will mourn if you have not given yourself to seeking after Jesus Christ. And now, now, now is the moment when you have the opportunity to come to him. In eternity, mercy's gates are shut, God's long-suffering is over, and justice commences its awful work. And so he cries out, O God, my God, I beseech you, plead with men, for we are weak. Plead with them and make them feel that neither death nor judgment nor hell are things to be trifled with. And what you've got now is the overflow of Spurgeon's own earnestness everything he's been talking about is not a theory he's putting it into practice he cries out to god on behalf of the lost and now he cries out to the lost oh sinner was christ in earnest and are you foolish was christ in earnest i say and do you despise do you forget do you neglect this great salvation i can say at this moment i do feel a longing for the conversion of my hearers such as i cannot describe. My friends, if we want under God the secret to Spurgeon's blessing in his ministry, there it is. I feel a longing for the conversion of souls such as I cannot describe. I would count it a high privilege if I might sleep in death this morning, if that death could redeem your souls from hell. Here is apostolic fervor and earnestness. And why then should we as ministers be earnest and you be dull, God forgive you this sin and forbid you to trifle longer. Faith in Christ, he says, is the great way of salvation. Trust Jesus. Trust him with all your heart and you are saved this morning and your sins are gone. And when you are saved yourself, I pray you forget not what I have tried to instill this morning, that if we serve God with all our heart, we shall prosper in his ways and that we cannot expect to see his blessing upon anything that we do unless we do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. Well may God grant that we may at least begin to begin to learn those things from this man who's who's not just trying to make other people do something but is himself caught up in the work of the kingdom. I trust that we'll take these things to heart. It's not carnal to call men to serve in the cause of Jesus Christ. It's not ridiculous to Uh, make us feel a sense of our duty to honour God with all that we are and all that we have. Spurgeon then is not only calling us to this, he is demonstrating this as he goes. And I think, I know for my own life and I think for the congregation which I serve and I imagine for anyone here who is listening, if God gave us such zeal, such earnestness, such commitment, such wholeheartedness in his service then it would transform our thinking, our feeling, our planning, our pursuing and persevering, our praying, and that God in his mercy may yet give us the blessing which our souls crave. Well, God willing, next week, I hope you'll uh, join us again. If the Lord spares us, will be in sermon 442 for our featured sermon, God's Will and Man's Will. I hope you'll find us again, and I trust that this and Future podcasts will continue to be a blessing to your soul. May God have mercy upon us and stir us up then to serve him while it is day. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app. If you want to hear more like this, visit mediagratii.org to find my word in season devotions John Snyder's Behold Your God podcast or Andy Christofides' A Ransom for Many.